Okay, so we're, uh, as Nicole said, continuing in the book of Esther. And uh, the story, the narrative of it, it, is one that for many of us is somewhat familiar, as we have discussed. And yet it is uh, far off, maybe, from what we think that we might know or understand. It can be a story that is layered and complex and it's one that the familiarity of it in the Sunday school stories and in the VeggieTale stories uh, forces us in some sense to think that we know more of what's going on than maybe is really going on at times. And yet, it's also a story that it's kind of obvious what's happening at different places and at different points. And where we find ourselves in this story is no different. As Nicole reads in chapter 7, and as you see what's going on and you see the happenings that are taking place, you begin to understand and realize that something bad is going to happen, right? It's dramatic irony. There's some comedy here that what we as the reader and the hearer, we're like, oh, we can see where this is all going, right? We know what's going to happen, that the story is going to change. And so it's obvious, and yet it's not so obvious. And that's what good storytelling is, right? Good stories, good narratives allow us to enter in and to begin to like find ourselves in the story and to participate in it. And it can seem obvious, and yet really good stories, there's also layers and complexity to it. And that's what our lives are like, right? There's layers and complexities and there's difficulties and there's things that we think we know and understand because we're so familiar with it or because we want to choose to believe this certain thing, and yet if we take the time to pause and to reflect, we'll begin to realize that there's actually a whole lot of things about our own stories that we don't understand. And in this way, Esther is an invitation for us to participate in what it means to live a narrative, a story. This is the beauty of narrative, being in the Bible, is it teaches us how to do this in our own lives and to reflect. So in Esther so far, we know that there's not really a hero, right? We've talked about this so far. These are some things that we've tried to highlight. That the heroes aren't what we think they are, and there's debates on whether it's Mordecai or Esther and where the heroes really at, and are they like, you know, counter heroes or whatever you might say. And there's tension in this story, but Esther's story is coming to the fore now. Since chapter five, which Kyle preached on last week and six, uh, there's this way in which we begin to see that she's the queen of the most powerful empire in the world. And there's things in the narrative that signal this to us, right? She puts on the queen's garments and the robes, and she begins to do queenly things. And that's who she is. And this matters, and it's important. And we begin to see it, and the story's starting to focus on her. And this character, Haman, his story uh, with all the power and the things that he had is now being seen for the folly. It seems like he's the one that kind of can have influence at the beginning of the story, and we see that that's going to slowly start to fade into the background. He has this frustration and this anger towards Mordecai, who's a Jew. And Esther's Jewishness has been hidden through the background, right? And so the story and the narrative and the plot, we're in our climax, chapter 6, and there's this movement into chapter 7. And so what we see in this, and what we see going on, is that Haman has a thirst, a hunger, to be seen for status, for power, to, to be able to have influence. And he longs and he desires to be in the positions where the decisions are made, to be on the inside. And you see this thirst and this hunger that he has, this grasping for clout, if you will, for this fame, that it begins to eat him alive. And we're supposed to see this in the story. 
it seems obvious to him or to us, the reader, that this was going to happen. You know, especially if you've been raised in the church, even if you're not familiar with the story of Esther. You're like, yeah, 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 we get it. You're going to fly too close to the sun. You know, the thing's going to happen. It's going to grow too big. The desire, the, the pursuit of whatever he is after is going to become the thing that ends up being his demise. We know this story really well. And yet Kyle did this thing last week where we read it and we kind of nod and we go, yeah, 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 Haman, that's what happens. He wants power, he wants authority, and eventually that power and that authority is going to be the thing that ultimately he fails and, and receives his own demise. And we nod and we go, yeah, 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 people like that are terrible. And the point of the story much of Esther, what it's doing, and what Kyle's point last week was, and it, what it's inviting you into, is to begin to see this story and this narrative as a mirror and a reflection for your own life, and for human nature, and for people here now, even today, that, to look at it and go, wait a minute, hold on, stop. I might have a little Haman in me. I might have a little Xerxes in me. I might understand and know where the story is going, because despite my willingness to admit it, or not admit it, I should say, I'm familiar with how this plays out because I've experienced it over and over and over again. There's this way in which we have to reckon with who we are and the conditions that we find ourselves in. And so if you read the story and you wrestle with it and you begin to peel back the layers and dip into the complexity and you do so with your own life, what you begin to see is that you're familiar with Haman's plight. You're familiar with this tendency to pursue something, to grasp at something over and over again, to long for something so deeply, so badly, that you end up in your own failure as a result. And the author, I think, of Esther is trying to say that this is, in many ways, the story of humanity. And God has to enter into this story in some way. It has to intervene to, to get us out of this rhythm, this cycle, this circle that happens because we see it play out over and over again in minor ways. I, I don't know if you guys feel this way. I feel this way. As I, as I near the end of the story, the longer we've set, I feel myself identifying more and more with Haman, even though I really, really, really would rather identify more with Esther and her big moment, the one that changes everything. Go back to chapter 6 as we set up for 7. There's this moment, there's this scene Haman has been invited to the banquet with the king and Esther, right? He's drunk. He's happy. We're going to do some uh, holy conjecture here. And I imagine in that moment, he's happy. He leaves. And he thinks, man, aren't I amazing? Aren't I so cool? Like, I was the only person that wasn't a part of, like, the royal inner circle that was there. Like, my influence, all that I've longed for and all that I've desired has been achieved. I've made it. I've arrived. He walks out of the court, or the, the, the castle, the palace. He goes. He's continuing on his journey. The people are bowing and get, paying him the respects that he is supposed to uh, have in his mind, that he deserves in his mind. The thing that he's been striving for and grasping for, it's all starting to happen. And he's really, really happy. He's really, really excited. And he's on the inner circle. And he's there, and he, he was at the banquet, now, dear reader, you and I know that that is going to be a failure and that there's a setup coming, but he doesn't know this yet. And then he encounters one person that won't bow, that won't do the thing, that won't pay him the respects that he thinks he deserves. 
And he doesn't look at that one person and say, yeah, it's just one person. It's a lowly, grieving Jewish person that's on the outside that, that isn't, you know, there's no importance to that person. And this is what the author of Esther wants you to see in Haman. And that wants you to see in your own life that you are prone to do, in my own life, that I am prone to do. You see this moment that he was walking home. He should be on cloud nine. He should be excited. He should be full of joy. And he is up until the moment that one person won't bow to him. And I can only imagine that he goes home angry, throwing things probably, you know, like he's violent and angry enough that he, he wants the impalement of Mordecai to happen the next day. Not, not later like it was supposed to. Now he needs it to happen tomorrow. The very next moment he wants it to happen. He builds this huge thing because his anger has consumed him. I don't think Haman's the only one that experiences this. I know I experience it. How many times in my life have I longed for something, desired something, and life is pretty good? And because my longings and my desires and my pursuits that I think will result in the good life, that I think is happiness, that I think is pleasure, begin to happen and they take place. And yet I let one person, one thing, one moment ruin what the Lord is doing in my life or, or what I thought I've accomplished, even if it's not the Lord. Because I'm angry, because I'm consumed by that thing. I'm obsessed with that thing. I'm grasping at this idea that it, this is what happiness is. This is what the good life is. This is what David Foster Wallace, who I've quoted way too many times for a normal human being, is getting at when he says in his address to Kenyon College, that you will die a thousand deaths before they finally lay you in the ground. If you're pursuing something that does not bring life, you will pursue it over and over again, and it will never be enough. There will never be enough for you. I, I can't be the only one, but I'll share this story. Anyways, I, I, I buy something, right? I long, you guys know me well enough to know that I like shoes. I don't buy a lot of shoes, but I like shoes a lot. And so I, I can get maybe one pair, two pairs a year, I have this sick addiction, and I think you relate to it. And we can laugh about shoes, but I get the one pair. And before they even arrive in the mail, I'm already thinking about the next pair of shoes I got to get. But two days ago, I was like, well, if I just got this one pair, then I, I'll be good. I don't need any more. Like, I'll be set. I do it with a thousand other things. I think if, if, if I just get to here, if this one person, if this one, you know, if you would just say I'm sorry, then, then I would feel better about myself. If I, would, if I would get that one whatever it is that I think I need for my life to find fulfillment, hope, wholeness, if it would just happen, then my life would be able to continue on. Then I'd be able to go somewhere. And as soon as it happens, I'm just angry about the one thing that now I think I need because it, it never ends unless you pursue something that is eternal. We're supposed to see this in Haman. You're supposed to see it in Xerxes, in his drunken rage and his passion and his anger and his ability to just, you know, make decisions on a whim that have drastic and lasting impact. You're supposed to see that there are these cycles in human nature that we are going to go through again and again. And if you do not have the ability to see that and to recognize in yourself that you are the same, then you will not have the ability, as we near the end of the book of Esther, to recognize and acknowledge part of the point of what you're supposed to be taking away from this story. What the author is trying to get at. And so, chapter 6, he's angry, he's mad. Kyle mentioned this last week as well. 
we can all be mad at Kyle, by the way, for making that point last week because my week has been more difficult because of it because I can only see it everywhere now that I, too, am just like Haman because I think everybody else is Haman, and so I must have some Haman in me, and that's the point. And so this happens, and he goes and he does the thing. And then Kyle talked about how while this is happening, the king is being read a story, the chronicles of his kingdom. That might be a little bit narcissistic. It might also be because he was being driven mad by the fact that he wants to know what Esther's question is going to be the next day. He longs to know what was bothering her. Why did you get us together? What do you want to ask? And Esther has delayed it twice now. So the third moment she's going to end up in front of the king in a few short chapters as we enter chapter 7. And so the king's longing to know what she wants. And God's acting, as Kyle said last week, while everyone else is asleep. God's moving while everyone else is completely passive and they have nothing to play in this. And this is part of the point of Esther as well, is God's providence, his hand. What seems like coincidence over and over again is really God's movement and his power. And part of us knows and understands that we can only see that 2020 hindsight, right? You only are able to understand that once it's complete, But we can sing songs like we sang this morning knowing that that is true and that the people of God live into this, that we can believe that he won't fail us even though it feels like he will. Even if you don't understand it, that's faith. And so Esther, in this moment, finally gets in front of the king and she says, okay, I'm going to do the thing now. I'm going to ask the question that I was supposed to ask. And when she does it, The king is enraged, right? That someone would come after his queen and his wife. And that there would be this moment. And so there's this giant pole that's been erected that's supposed to be for Mordecai. They call it the gallows. They would have been impaled upon. And he would have been left there to be mocked and laughed as someone that was unwilling and refused to bow to the powers that be in the empire at hand. And ultimately... Haman's going to receive that fate of his own making. He's going to receive the very thing that he was intending to put on someone else. His anger, his wrath will lead to his own death. Because in that moment when Esther finally stands before the king and she says to the king, that's the villain. That's the one that has tried to do this to me and to my people. The king's in rage. Now, there's a subtle thing that happens here that what we need to see and understand is that as we see Haman's anger, or fear, I should say, in that moment, that he realizes his own fate, we know in the next chapter, if you continue reading, Kyle will talk about this some next week, that when the king makes an edict, when he makes a decree, he can't just go back on his word. It's final. Why? I'm not really sure, but there's no wiggle room here in our story in Esther. If Haman would have understood this, there would have been some calm, some clarity that maybe could have uh, come over him in that moment. Haman also could have understood that the king can't uh, cause a problem. He can't take his anger out on someone when he's the one that signed it and sealed it. There's a lot of subtext that's going on in this moment when Haman is fearful and pleading for his life. Now, historically, what we don't get in the text at all is that because Esther was the wife of the king and because she was a part of the harem, not just the wife, but anyone a part of the harem, no man in the kingdom was supposed to be in the same room as someone of the harem unless they were a eunuch or the king was in the room with them. 
So instead of pleading for his life, he should have just left. Had he just left, most likely, the king, Xerxes, would have been in a difficult position because he would have been unable to find reason to punish Mordecai or Haman because he's the one that signed off on it. And though the king would have been angry. And so you see this folly and this failure of what's happening here. It's supposed to be a comedy of errors. And also a horror of errors. Because it leads to a horrific demise. That This man, unwilling to just stop and pause for a second and see what's actually going on outside of himself, continues to make his own mistakes over and over and over and over again. Continues to do the thing that if he, if he would just stop for a moment and not be so obsessed with his own life, not be so obsessed with his own achievements, not be so obsessed with his own power that then maybe he would actually survive the situation. But instead, he pleads and he begs. Because when you're that singularly obsessed or focused on something, when you grasp your whole life to hold on and to maintain something, when it seems like it's being taken away from you, in that moment you will do whatever it takes, even if it is something that you know you shouldn't be doing. And the comedy, not really ha-ha comedy, but the comedy of it all, the dramatic irony of it, is that that grasping, that final grasp, will be the thing that is his demise. The king comes back in, right? Sees him reaching for Esther, I have no doubt in this passage, and I don't think you should uh, assume this either, there, there probably was nothing actually like nefarious really going on there in terms of what you and I would consider uh, illicit behavior. He is scared, and he is desperate, and he's saying, please do not let him kill me, because he also knows that Xerxes uh, will listen to anybody but himself. Xerxes doesn't want to actually make any decisions on his own. He passes that off to everybody else. It's what gets him into this trouble to begin with. So he knows that Esther can convince him otherwise. Esther can change his mind. If she would just do it. And so he's pleading and begging with her to change his mind. Trips, falls, whatever happens. There's some interesting stories uh, and uh, commentary on this from the ancient East where they think that maybe it's like an angel of some sort caused him to fall. You know, that they're going to double up on this providence. But in all of this, he falls, he ends up on the couch with Esther as Xerxes walks back in. And now Xerxes has his reason to kill him. Now he's got it. It's easy as that. He indicted himself in that moment. Had he just walked away, had he just let go, he would have been able to get out of the situation quite possibly. But he won't. He grasps. He pushes. He can't see anything but the very thing that he wants to define for himself as good and right. What is success, achievement, the happiness of life that he thinks until he gets that he can't have it. And the point, or one of the main points, is that we're no different. That we continue to do the same thing over and over again. And this, you should be tired of me saying this all the time, but it's true because it comes back again and again and again. This is what happens in Genesis. God lays out for humanity to just say, listen, if you'll just trust me and understand that I'm going to define what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is not right, what is happiness and what is failure, what is life and what is death. If you'll trust me and follow that, then you'll receive it. But if you don't, then you'll, your life will end in death. Just like Haman, 
Just like almost every other story in Scripture, we see this repeated over and over and over again. That there's this way in which we as humanity, what we insist on doing is defining for ourselves what is good and what is right. What is happiness and what is life. And in so doing, we repeatedly do the same thing where we reach out and we choose for ourselves death of our own making. A mess of our own making that could have been avoided had we just sat and trusted. Because the lie in that moment, in the garden, and the lie to Haman and the lie to me and you that we hear and believe over and over again is, right, 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 I hear you, I know that. I know conceptually that's probably true. But like nobody knows me like I know me. Nobody knows what I need. Nobody knows what I want. And so what I'm going to do is I'll trust God mostly. Or, or I'll whatever. You know, Haman's not trying to trust God. We get that. I'm making some jumps here if you stick with me. But we think to ourselves that that's what we need. And here's the truth that I'm convinced of that Scripture has bared out over and over again. And that is that God was never intending to hold out on humanity that they wouldn't have the knowledge of good and evil. We see that again, again. That the tree was never meant to be like, oh, well, you can't have the knowledge of good and evil, which is the lie the serpent tells. Which if you move to these stories, it is not, and in the stories of your own life, whatever that thing is that you're grasping for, longing for, desiring for, that you think will bring you happiness, the lie you believe is that if I don't do these things, if I don't go for this, if I don't give my life to this, then I will never receive it. And the truth the, the Father wants you to hear is that he does not hold out on you, that you can trust him, that he loves you. And if you would just, just wait a minute and just trust that he has good intentions for you, that he has desires for you, that, that all that he created in abundance was meant to be yours in excess, tenfold, that his dreams, his desires, his longings for you are more than you could ever want or imagine on your own if you just trust and let him provide for you the pathway for the good life, to live in abundance, to live an infinite life of joy, of hope, if we trust, but we don't. And this is the point. This is the story. The people of Israel, they have not trusted. They're still there. They've forgotten about God, and they're supposed to say, we are no different than Haman. And so they think, well, what are we supposed to do? And this is what happens. And you and I live this way again and again, hoping, believing that if we just get to that moment, which is why I think we start to confuse the story of Esther. And we get to something like chapter 7 and we're like, ah, see, this is the moment. The title of, you know, the sermon series that nobody wants, the such, a, such a time as this. Because it's missing the whole point. We think that, see, okay, maybe we've messed up, but now we're supposed to do this thing. Part of the why we think Esther is such a hero is we're like, see, th there it is. There's the moment. There's the time. This, this thing that is happening, and now we're supposed to live into it. But Esther is assuring us as a narrative and as a book that there's been a whole lot of other stuff happening in the background. There's been a whole lot of other stuff that has had nothing to do with Esther herself that has been God's providence and his provision and his guidance and his care and the fact that he is assured that his people will prevail regardless of whether or not they participate in that prevailing. Because he will be good and faithful to deliver on that which he has promised. And so Esther's story is not an individual story. Esther's story is one that is tied to a people. The whole book of Esther is to lead us to another point, which is to understand that it is not individual success and individual moments 
that really matter all that much, but it is that the people of God will always prevail. And part of what it means to be that people is to participate in the life and the rhythms and the hopes and the joys and the ways of that people. And so this is what Esther is called to, is, is to regain that status of being a part of that people. Not simply just to shine in a moment as a hero. Because if we think about it, you and I, we don't often really have those moments laid before us. These are like the 1% of stories, right? Very few of you, if ever, will stand in front of a political dignitary of that level and magnitude and have the opportunity to advocate for, you know, the life of the church or whatever it might be, these grand moments and ideas that we think that, like, we're all destined to if we just follow Christ closely enough. It's not the realities. For every story of Esther, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of faithful Jewish people that were alive in those moments, that had their own moments that didn't make it into story, that, that weren't there. That's like next level kind of stuff that most of us will never really accomplish. That we won't end up in a, in a moment like that. And yet what the story is saying is because that moment really doesn't matter all that much. That moment's not the whole point. The whole point is, is the faithfulness and trusting in who Yahweh is. That you would give yourself to being a part of the ways of this people and living in such a way that your life is aligned with and in congruence with what God would have for you so that you can accomplish or achieve or experience the infinite life that he intended for you to experience. The opposite of what Haman's life was. To participate in this life and to be a part of this people. I don't know where he got this idea, but Jameson came home the other day. We are hanging out. you got to keep up quick with his stories. They, they bounce everywhere. We're in a video game and then a superhero, another dimension. And then he just stops and he goes, hey, I love my family. And I said, I'm very glad. At this point, I'm like, this is clearly going somewhere else. And I said, that's, that's good, buddy. I'm, I'm glad you love your family. And he says, I, you know, I love my family so much, I would do anything for my family. And I was like, okay, where's this going? But that's great. And he says, I love my family so much that I would die for my family. I'm like, what have you been reading? And Like, who have you been talking to? Like, he comes home from school. He's like, I'm going to die for my family. I was like, oh, okay. Like, that's, that's cool. He's like, I would take a missile for my family. I'm like, okay, let's slow this thing down. Like, I don't know why we got into missile talk here. You guys get where he's coming from. This expressed desire, this felt thing that's in him, that he, he loves his family. And that's a really good thing. And like maybe, oh, maybe not all of you in this room, but a lot of you in this room, you understand that. That like, oh man, I love my family so much, I would do anything for them. I love the person sitting next to me, the, my friend, the coworker, whatever. I would do anything for them. And we imagine these grand moments of what it would mean to sacrifice our entire lives for them to give up something large and unimaginable. Like, what is the greatest thing you could think of? It's to take a missile for him, so let's do that. And yet, what we don't reckon with, and what I walked Jameson back with in that moment, and I think I was able to do so because of the book of Esther, we see these grand moments. We see what sacrifice and giving up our lives might possibly look like. And we say, yeah, I would do that. And then the response that I think the Holy Spirit is saying to us in that moment is, good, do that every day, again and again, when no one's looking. Because what I 
told Jameson was, as I said, what sacrifice really looks like, buddy, if you love your family, is not just taking a missile. In fact, well, we don't have to go into this, but Anna's got this whole theory that to really love someone is to, to let them die because they get to go be with Jesus. And she's like, why would anybody want to live like, with the conscious awareness of like, you know, so here we go. So it's like, well, you don't got to do that, right? There's this moment where, where we imagine that that's what it is. And I'm like, buddy, I didn't go into that with him. But I said, listen, I love your mom. and I love you a lot. And, and I would totally do whatever I had to to sacrifice for you. But like, that's probably not going to happen. It's like a 1% chance that I'll have to like, you know, jump in front of a speeding car and take that for my family. But what is going to happen, and what was happening in that moment was I had to sacrifice what I wanted to do and what I thought I should be doing and my productivity and my goals and the things that I had longed for and desired for that day and for my life and for that week. And I had to be present to my child because then those stories are going to go to weird, crazy, make-believe stories that I don't really care about anymore. I'm, I'm done, you know? But I have to be present. What I have to do to display my love for my wife is not some grand gesture it's not, you know, this, oh, look at this thing. It's day in and day out of being willing to sacrifice my life for her over and over again. And it's not that big thing that we think it is. But it's the simple things of life that we sacrifice and give up in the moment. So I told him, I said, uh, if you really love your family so much that you'd sacrifice your life for him, it means like letting your brother have the last ice cream sandwich. That's sacrifice. I was like, it's letting mom pick the music when you really have a song you want to listen to. It's being willing to let somebody else have something that you had been saving for yourself. I was like, that's sacrifice day in and day out. And if you love your family, that's the kind of sacrifice that love demands. I think he got it for a second, then he was gone, and then there was fights and hands and tears and, you know, whatever happens, this way kids go. But we're no different. We do the same thing over and over again. We declare these loves, and then the minute our love is challenged... The minute someone would dare question my greatness or my goodness, my loyalty, my hard work, my efforts, I throw love out the window and I hurl accusations. And I spin and spiral in a circle and I assume that, well, see, they never loved me anyways, so why would I love them in return? They're all terrible people. Because I'm just like Haman. Even though I want to be like Esther in the moment, I long for it. But I have to die. I have to sacrifice again and again, over and over. And I have to trust that the Lord is doing something. And I have to believe the best in people. And I have to sacrifice and risk things in my life. Because what we really want most of the time is this safe, protected life, but the gospel just refuses to let us have that. We're called to risk and to give something up on a daily basis over and over again to risk what we would want, what we would desire, what we think is good in order to participate in the life of the kingdom. And this is what Esther is showing us, that we can take away with us today. Because here's the thing, I've said this for a while now, that I think that we oftentimes think of Christ and what it means to pick up his cross and to follow him is that moment of Gethsemane, death, burial, resurrection, Easter weekend. But we oftentimes stop or, or skip over and we don't stop and think about that like Christ gave up a whole bunch. You ever stop and think about what it means that we declare on a regular basis that that man existed for eternity's past, present, and future at the right hand of the Father? And then he had to come be a baby where he knew nothing. That's sacrifice. His whole life, not the cross in just that one moment. The cross defines his whole life. 
The cross defines something about the way he lived and existed and his being, that it was all sacrifice, that it was all giving up what he thought he needed and what he thought he wanted and what he thought the good life would be. Because I'm here to tell you, being at the right hand of the Father for eternity's past, present, and future and never having to deal with the mess that is humanity would have been much better than having to come down and deal with the mess of being in humanity. And that's his whole life. And that's what we're called to participate in and to follow. And here's what makes the story even better. Is we know that's the truth of humanity and why humanity is terrible and, and we mess things up. And if anybody works with people on a regular basis, which is all of you and to some degree, you understand. Everyone will say, my job's pretty good. Well, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people will say, my job's pretty good. The worst part is, is the people. My family's pretty good. I like what we do. I like our traditions. But, man, the people, the relationships, they're difficult. Church is an amazing thing until you remember that we're all a bunch of sinners. And we have to deal with each other and our egos and our pride and our wants and our desires. And we have to sacrifice again and again. It's the people. And so Jesus comes to deal with the people. And this is the beauty of the story of the gospel. Is that in that moment, he comes. He sacrifices everything, his whole life to come and to be present, to condescend to us, dirt and mud people, as we're called in Genesis. Dirty people. And he comes and he gets really, really dirty. And the whole time, he's aware of the fact that we have been creating a mess of our own making, just like Haman. One that is inevitably going to result in our own impalement and death and destruction. And he is the righteous one. And he is the one that wants to provide more for us than we can ever want, think, or imagine. And the trade that he makes is he says, all right, fine. You've been setting yourself up. Our life has been the same dramatic irony and the comedy of errors that we see in Haman and the people of God. And Jesus says in that moment, but I'll do it. I'm the righteous one. I've come to show you the way, and I'm going to show it to you so much that I will take the impalement that was meant for you, that your wrath that your anger, that your pettiness has created. And he says, I'll do it. I'll take it. And in so doing, he creates a way for us to continue to be the people of God that we can experience the life and the joy and the hope of the kingdom in full access. And all he asks, simple, is that we live like he did. Being willing, day in and day out, to give up, to sacrifice, for those around us that we love, that we care for, to participate in the life in that kind of way, to give up on the like, just hard certainty that we believe that life is finite and that if Daniel gets something, then that means I don't. And we die deaths over and over again. But here's the thing that I love about that idea is that in Christ's death and as we enter in and participate in the people of God, we don't have to worry about death because we are already dead in Christ. The death's done. We're already dead. It's over. He's already taken on the wrath, the failures, the, the thing that we deserve. And there's a grace and a freedom that allows us to live in a new kind of way that reorients life and turns us right side up. And we get, begin to see the world and go, wait, no, when they succeed, I succeed. Because I'm, I'm not trying to keep myself alive. I'm trying to participate in life that's right in front of me. And that it's offered freely in front of me. And this is what we celebrate each and every week when we come to the table. And so as the band comes and they play the next song, we're going to participate in this. In communion, 
where we come and receive freely of the gifts of God for the people of God, as we are reminded that Christ's life was sacrificed us long before it ever got to the cross. And yet, simultaneously, what we know in that cross and in the burial and resurrection is that this life of sacrifice that he lives is made available to us and that in that we experience something. We experience a hope and a joy. We experience a freedom and a grace that allows us to live and operate and function in such a way that was not available before this. We take on a little bit of Christ. We eat the body, we drink of the blood, and in so doing, something happens inside of us where we begin to be transformed into Him and live in a way that He lived. And it's made capable for us as the Holy Spirit meets us and does something and transforms us as the body and the cup, the bread is transformed before us as we come and partake and receive as the Holy Spirit is present here asking you to come and to experience this, to let go, to live open-handed, to experience life and life abundant and to realize like what we think is the end goal is just the floor. Like it's just the start. It's just the beginning of what God would intend for us to experience if we're willing to live that way. I come excited for communion this morning because I, I need that this week. I need to hear that in a deep kind of way. That all the things that I long for and hope for, that like, yeah, they're good, sure, fine, whatever. But like, I've already died those deaths. Like, why, why do I keep dying them over and over again? Why do I keep subjecting myself to this comedy of errors when I know that Christ is offering me so much more? And who cares what people, you know, whatever opinions, thoughts, ideas. That's what I'm obsessed with. You've got your own things. It's fine. But we can give it up. We can let go of it. And we can find it in different kind of ways as we live and understand that Christ is available for us this morning here and now and that we come and we partake and we die in this moment. It's all the things that we think we need and we rest in the death of Christ and we experience the life and life abundant of resurrection as we eat together as one people from one body and one cup. So as the band plays, come, take a piece of the bread and the cup, go back to your seats, hold on to those elements. It's gluten-free on this side if you're in need of that. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.